Okay, and we are joined by the good people of Inverurie and also our friends in Bucksburn, Catalyst Vineyard Church West, and also a couple of cafe churches as well. And so we, uh, we are so delighted about that that we're going to give the world's biggest, loudest cheer to them. And then we've set up a little microphone so that you can give us a really big, loud cheer. We haven't, but let's just pretend that we have. And you're going to give us a loud cheer. Yeah, okay. It didn't really work, but never mind. Um, it's so flipping good to be here. Uh, Taryn and I, oh, I'm Chuck, by the way, in case we haven't met before. Uh, my hot wife, Taryn, is sat on the, fr- oh, it's, uh, on the front row. And um, we've been missing in action for three months uh, as a church. You have so graciously, generously enabled us to disappear from view for three months as a sabbatical, and uh, um, it's been absolutely life-changing, and we have come back dramatically different people, and we're really excited to tell you all about that. Uh, There's no time today, but in particular in three weeks' time, uh, the first Sunday in October, we plan to share a lot more about what the Lord has been doing amongst us, just by way of a report, really. But I guess the the very brief summary is that almost everything that the Lord did was internal to us. Uh, He's performed surgery on our souls and in our hearts. He's spoken to us in a way that we have maybe perhaps never experienced before. Um, And uh, there are some things to do with the church, uh, but there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, There's no big program. There's nothing like that. uh, It's difficult to put into words, but but almost it's been a profoundly life-shaping experience. And uh, if I could just say that I don't know whether I've been closer to the Lord Jesus since I was 15 when I first became a Christian. I don't know whether the scriptures uh, have been so precious to me over the last 25 years as they have over the last three months. And uh, it's just been really, really amazing. So just I, uh, all we want to say at this point is, thank you so much. There you go. How long was that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, moving on. Uh, just before we left, we started a new series in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, for us, it's still a new series. For you, you guys have been in it all summer. Uh, But we called the series Weak But Strong because that is really the central theme of this letter. That that ultimately, uh, the ways of the world are not the ways of God. That that in the world, uh, it's all about living your best life. You know, hashtag live your best life. Put the best part of yourself on show and uh, be confident, be able, be capable, be... um, self-assured, and uh, Paul's central point is that he's put his, God has put his treasure in jars of clay, that his power is made perfect in our weakness, and so therefore we can just be at peace. You don't have to pretend to be your best, you know, persona. You don't, you don't have to present the best part of yourself. You, you don't have to be anyone else. You can be perfectly at rest and perfectly yourself. What a sweet message. And uh, so where we're going this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the second half. So if you've got a Bible with you, now is the moment to produce it. I'm going to read it in my best BBC voice. Um, Slightly quirky passage. Uh, If you're new to our church, 
you maybe don't know, but we basically preach through books of the Bible in our church. And so what that means is that sometimes you come across a passage that you might never preach on if you didn't do that. But there's a such there's such a sweetness to it, and there's a really profound message for us this morning. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to start reading from verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. And then he quotes what other people have been saying about him. He says, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. He's being basically sarcastic. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. That's God's word to us today. Have you ever noticed that there are a whole bunch of things in life that seem loads easier when somebody else is doing them? I don't know whether you've ever noticed that. Whilst we were away over the summer, we went to France for a couple of weeks on holiday and there was, by the beach there, there was a, a, like a fairground, and in the fairground there was a bucking bronco. Hands up if you're aware of the phenomena, the bucking bronco. I don't, is it a cow or a horse? Hands up for cow? Hands up for horse? I don't know. Anyway, you, you know the thing, you have to sit on it, and it kind of moves around, and there's like a padded circle around you so that when you inevitably fall off, you don't get hurt. And I, it just occurred to me that that guy's entire business model is based on the idea that when you're stood watching it you think that looks easy and when you're doing it it's actually really really hard other things that look easy when other people do them are things like DIY especially plumbing or chess or baking hands up if you're really excited about the great British bake-off being back on the screens yeah there's nothing to be ashamed of people it's okay I found this website that had pictures of Uh, People who've been really inspired by cakes that they'd seen and then their versions of it. Let's just have it. I don't know whether you've seen these kind of websites. So you can imagine that this little hedgehog here, people just thought to themselves, do you know what? That looks manageable. I think I could do that. I'm going to give it a shot. Let's see how they got on. Yeah. (laughs) That's scary, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Okay, next one. Oh, who's that? What's that called? Olaf. Okay, let's see how Olaf appeared. Oh, yeah. Not so good. Okay, let's have the next one. Oh, who's that? Pikachu. I'm worried about some of you that know the answer to these questions. And let's see how they got on. Oh, dear. That'll give you nightmares, won't it? Let's have the final one. Oh, Wally. Let's see how they got on with Wally. Oh, dear. Okay. Let's move on. A whole bunch of things look way easier when other people do them. I can't think of a a better or more accurate example than friendship. Relationships are, in fact, much harder when you're doing them than they appear to everyone else. And uh, the truth is that probably nearly everyone in this room, nearly everyone in the Inverurie site, nearly everyone in the West site, 
would have at least one relationship in their life that is just complicated or tense or just really, really hard. Maybe it's um, parent-child relationships or child-to-parent relationships. They just seem way easier when you watch other people doing them. Or maybe it's a relationship with a colleague or a boss or a, somebody who works for you or a friendship, a platonic friendship or a, a marriage relationship. Relate, the truth is that relationships are just much harder than they feel like they should be. And I've been so struck as I've been reading through this letter, the agony that these relationships have caused to the Apostle Paul. Let's not forget, these are people who Paul's lived in their midst for 18 months. He's led many of them to the Lord personally. He's walked alongside them in their discipleship. He's loved them. He's served them. He's given himself to them. And they've responded by demeaning him, belittling him, rejecting him. Maybe some of you have experienced that, that whatever you've invested into a relationship has come back in, in entirely the opposite spirit. It's just hard, isn't it? It's just hard. And I've just been so struck by the reality that even though this relationship has been a source of immense pain for Paul, this is like we said right at the start of this series. This I know it's called 2 Corinthians, but it's really 4 Corinthians. We know that from the context of the two letters. He's written four times to try to mend this relationship. And then he says in verse 14 there, he says, I'm, I'm just about to visit you for the third time. I just find that unbelievably challenging. It is challenging in a world where pretty much if a relationship goes a bit difficult or tense in our society like for example if someone just posts one too many Facebook posts of cats doing the craziest things our immediate response is click unfriend friendship is so disposable relationships are so temporary in our culture and yet here is Paul just going again and again and again to try to be reconciled with his friends and so we that really leads us to the question which is the title of today's talk what is Paul's secret source like how does he keep going where does he get his resilience from where does he get his strength from where does he get his perseverance from how does he keep going and going and going when this relationship is so complicated and it just occurred to me when I was sort of preparing and, and praying over this text that actually we need to learn as a church the art of friendship and relationship because we have a, a sense of call to just play our tiny part in seeing the spiritual landscape of our nation changed. But that entire enterprise will rise or fall on our ability to forgive one another and to honor one another and to love one another and to persevere with one another. And the entire thing could come crashing down if we were to fall out with each other. And so what is his secret source is actually something of immense importance to us. And I, I just think the answer to his resilience comes from verse 19. And that's where we're mainly going to center our time together this morning. Verse 19, he says, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do is for your strengthening. So those are our three points today. In the sight of God as those in Christ. Everything we do is for your strengthening. So the first one, we conduct all of our relationships 
before God or in the sight of God or just in God's presence. I've got a friend who worked as a teenager in a petrol station. Hands up if you've ever worked in a petrol station before. Oh, some people. Okay. So this was an immensely busy petrol station. There were always queues at the pumps, and there were masses and masses of pumps. And one day he's there. He's, he's serving behind the till, and he sees Stacy from his geography class walking across the petrol station forecourt. And Stacy is someone who's made geography for him incredibly difficult because he is just absolutely like dumbstruck by her, every part of her. She's like the most perfect human being he's ever met. And, and so studying is really, really hard. She's coming across the forecourt. He's thinking, oh, no, I always just mess this up whenever I see her. She comes into the shop. She grabs a bottle of juice from the fridge. She gets a chocolate bar from the other section. And then she comes towards him and... She's opening her purse, and she's saying, like, how much do I owe you? And he's like, uh, 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 and in the end, all he can do is just point at the little screen above the till to say, that's how much you owe me. They, she gives him some money, uh, and then she walks out of the shop. And as, she, as the, the door closes behind her, she, he's like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, how do I always manage to just mess it up? I could just feel all of the words being sucked out of my throat whenever I try and speak to her. I've got no air in my lungs. I think I love her, but I've just got no way of communicating to her. And then to his horror, he looks down and he's had his hand on the button that presses for the microphone that broadcasts the entire conversation to not only Stacy but also the entire petrol station forecourt. And my point is that actually there's no such thing as a private conversation because the Lord is always here. Whatever I say behind somebody else's back is right towards the Lord. Whatever I mutter under my breath is spoken directly into the ears of God. Even that which is said in my own heart and never spoken out loud is transparently audible to the Lord. I think part of what Paul's saying is when he says, you know, everything that we've said has been before God. He's saying, I understand that I will one day be judged for everything that I've said. And so I've been constantly reminding myself that God is calling me to a higher standard in the way that I speak. Actually, uh, last week in the scriptures, I just came across this verse, Luke chapter 12, verse 3. It's one of the most terrifying things that Jesus ever said. He said this, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Oh my goodness, that's challenging. So part of what he's saying when he's saying we conducted this entire relationship and all of our interactions, we've done it. In the sight of God, before God, he's saying, I understand that I'm called to a higher standard in the way that I speak. But also what I think he's saying is to do with prayer. He's saying, you know, we've been conducting this relationship. We've been speaking about you before God. It's not just what he's saying and the way that he's relating 
that's important. It's the fact that he's scooping up all of this emotion, all of this pain, everything that is surrounding this relationship, and he's kind of dragging it all before God relentlessly. God, please will you do something? Please will you intervene? Generally speaking, I don't know about you, generally speaking, I sleep pretty well. But if there is one thing that keeps me up at night, it's fractures in relationships or tension in relationships. And I don't know about you, but I often at night find myself I like thinking through what did I say and how did I say and they said that and if I'd, only I'd said that and we're kind of, I'm kind of rerunning every conversation in my head and the emotional energy is just exhausting. Like just thinking through how could I fix this and what could I do and all of that. I, you know, often I'll try medicinal chocolate just to try and help ease the situation and sometimes that works to be fair but I'm just like how can I make this right and sometimes it just feels like I don't know about you sometimes it feels to me like I've just done everything that I can think of to make this relationship right but what Paul is teaching us there is that there is always one more thing that you can do when you've done everything that you can do the one more thing that you can do when you've done everything that you can do is to pray And maybe that's a word for some people this morning. There's a a relationship in your life that is a source of disappointment or frustration or pain. And you've tried everything. But maybe there is one more thing that you could do. Maybe you could pray. And you see him in chapter 13, for example, verse 7. He says, we pray to God that you won't do anything wrong. And then in chapter 13, verse 9, he says... Our prayer is that you may be fully restored. He's just like, I'm just praying about this situation constantly. Bringing this situation before the eyes of the Lord. And the other thing maybe that he's communicating with this sense of, I'm just conducting this relationship before God, is, do you know what? You you actually can't conduct a relationship away from God because you can't get out of God's presence. I... I said earlier on, one of the sweetest things about our sabbatical has been just reconnecting with Jesus. And honestly, it's just been amazing. Just such, like, so, I'm so grateful to Jesus for just coming close to me. And the truth is that, you know, like, uh, for all of us, sometimes when we're Christians, it feels like Jesus is a really long way away. And that's entirely normal. Maybe that's where you are today. One of the sickest things that the enemy does is is it's a a kind of a, it's a a well-reported, well-documented reality for people who suffer with depression. That at the same time as being profoundly depressed, it's like Jesus goes missing in our lives. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is gone, but the truth is, he said, I'll never leave you. And I'll never forsake you. The truth is you can't get out of God's presence. He's always here, even if it feels like he isn't. Um, Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I am uh, one of, I don't know what your strongest memory of being a child is. I think my strongest memory is of my dad teaching me to ride a bike. 
And to be fair to my poor dad, he was at the same time teaching my twin brother to ride a bike. And so I don't know if you've ever taught anyone to ride a bike, you'll know how completely exhausting it is because you've got to basically run along behind them when they're cycling. And it's really, really hard work. Imagine just trying to, trying to do that with two bikes at the same time or, you know, one and then the other. But I can remember, like, you know, first of all, you've got the stabilizers and then they take the stabilizers off and then, you, and then you've just got a really firm hand just walking you along and then that the firm hand gets slightly lighter and then it's like one finger and then eventually you're just cycling by yourself. And I can remember my dad at that point saying, you just need to cycle between that lamppost and that lamppost. Those are the boundaries, kid. And so I was just going up and down between the lampposts, and then I was like, hang on a minute, I'm free. Like, I could cycle wherever I want. And so I just carried on cycling past the lamppost, past the next lamppost, round the corner. And then I kept going, went past a whole mo load more lampposts, round another corner. And by this point, I'm just like miles away from home. Or that's what it felt like. It felt like probably 100 meters. But it just felt like miles and miles away from home. And then uh, there was a little kind of bump in the pavement, and I wobbled for a bit, and then I fell over. And which leads me on to my second memory, which is just having every single kind of pointy part of my body just grazed. Like, do you remember that? Just every single, and so my knees are grazed, my elbows are grazed, my face is grazed, and I'm sobbing. And then at that moment, my dad just steps out of the shadows. And it turned out that he'd been there all along. Our father is always there. You might say, where is God in this difficult relationship? Paul says, you, we've done all of this before God because he's, he's just right here. We conduct our relationships in the sight of God. That's the first thing. The second thing, which is shorter, is we conduct our relationships as those in Christ. He says, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those who are in Christ. As I've often said, I was in the Scouts when I was younger. Do we have any Scouts in the room? Uh, any Brownies? Guides? I uh, don't know what else there is. Boys Brigade? Girls Brigade? Anyway, I was in the Scouts, but it, it wasn't like the Air, the air Cadets or the Sea Scouts. Uh, it was what I would call the Solid Ground Scouts. You know, like we just did solid ground really, really well. And uh, in fact, there was one time when we went paragliding for the day. Uh, which involved being towed by, uh, by a Land Rover along a field whilst you were in an, on a parachute. And you can imagine how absolutely devastated I was when they said, I'm really sorry, Chuck, but the wind has just become too strong. It won't be possible for you to go paragliding today. Oh, really? Oh, I'm so disappointed. Anyway, so one, one weekend, we went, um, it was a water sports weekend, and so we did canoeing, which should really just be called swimming. We did rafting swimming. Uh, we did swimming, swimming, uh, and then in the afternoon we did sailing. And they put us into groups of three, and they stood us in front of these boats on the shore, just, or the river bank, just on the river Thames. And uh, so I'm with Graham and David, my two pals, and we're standing there. And David is the kind of kid who he's always done everything before. You know, like, oh, it's all right, I've done this. I know how to do this. And, and it didn't matter what it was, but it turned out that actually he had done sailing before, and so he, we didn't wait for the instructor to tell us what to do. He just got us all in the boat, and then he just pushed off and jumped in, and we were just sailing. And for the first while, it was brilliant. 
you know, I was like, actually, he has done this before. He's pulling ropes and he's like ducking under things. And, uh, you know, we're starting to get up a bit of speed, which is brilliant. But there are two kinds of other boats that regularly go past the River Thames near there. One of them is tourist boats because it was just beside Hampton Court Palace. And so there are loads of people t taking photographs. And so, like, me and Graham and David are like, you know, pulling on a rope or something like that. These guys are all clicking away. And then the boat goes past, and then there's like a huge wake at the back of the boat, and immediately we're in the drink. And we're like swimming again. And David's like, it's all right, I've got this, guys. He turns the boat back over, we all get back in. He said, don't worry, that, that's just an unusual occurrence, that'll never happen again. And so we just keep going a bit further along. Along comes the second kind of boat that often passes there, which is the party boat. You know, it's just like loads of people who've had a couple of drinks, the music's pumping, they're all dancing away, they're looking at us, and immediately, as soon as the boat goes past, we're in the wake, and then we're back over again in the drink. By this point, the instructor is like flying towards us on his inflatable, what do you call that thing, like an, uh, with an outboard on the back? A rib. Is it called a rib? Anyway, well, that, anyway you, you know the kind of thing. He's flying towards us. He's a really angry man. He's like, arms are flailing in the air. He says, you idiots, you forgot to attach the keel. Ah, and my point is, <laughs> you've missed this, haven't you? You've missed this. The point is, how the heck does the Apostle Paul stay so centered, so relationally open? How does he just keep going? How does he not just get capsized by all of this pain and, and just give up? And the answer is he puts his keel down really deep into the love of God. My wife thinks that's a good point. It would be okay, you know, occasionally if you just went, Preach it, brother! That would be fine by me. It's like waving hankies or anyway. These two words, in Christ, he says, we've, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ are Paul's favorite words for describing what it means to be a Christian. In Christ. And what they really mean is united to, in union with, remaining in, abiding in Jesus. Just being connected to Jesus. And so for Paul, predominantly, uh, his perspective on what being a Christian is, is not predominantly about understanding a whole bunch of truths about God, even though there's, that is unquestionably a huge thing for him. And for him, predominantly, it's not um, living a lifestyle. Being a Christian is not predominantly for Paul a lifestyle, even though he clearly is living a lifestyle that is dramatically different because he's connected to Jesus. Primarily, being a Christian for Paul is about union with Jesus. It's, being a, it's about being united, about drawing near to him. And from that place of absolute intimacy with the Lord flows a security and a stability that shapes the course of his life. The reason why he's not capsized by this horrendous situation happening in Corinth is because he's deeply, profoundly connected to the Lord. And so dotted throughout his letters are these moments where he elaborates on the fruit that comes in his life from being connected with Jesus. I just wanted to just pick out two so that you can see how this connection, this union, might change the way that you related to people. The first one is in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, where he says this, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he goes on to say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He says, if you're in Christ, then you're unshakably rooted in God's love and it can never be taken away from you. Can you understand the deep stability that would come to your life and dramatically shape the way that you did relationship with other people if you truly understood that you could never be removed from the love of God? The second one is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're deeply connected to the Lord, your heart is shielded in peace. If you're deeply in union with Jesus, your mind is enveloped with peace. So being in union with Jesus would dramatically change how we did relationships because our hearts and our minds are fully saturated in peace. And we're unshakably rooted in the love of God. It's like a keel just going down deep to stop us from being blown about by every crossword, every tension in relationship, every difficult moment with our boss, whatever it is. And the last thing is this we conduct our relationships on purpose, on purpose. Paul says, I've got a purpose in this relationship. I know, I've got a focus. I know where this is all headed. I know what, why am I investing in this relationship, even though it's being thrown back in my face. He says, everything we do is for your strengthening. That's what I'm focused on. You being built up and strengthened. My brother-in-law is a really clever guy. And uh, I think it was around the time that he got married, he bought a barn. And he said, oh, I've bought a barn. I'm going to turn it into a house. And we were impressed. We were like, wow, that sounds really cool. Until we saw the barn, which was um, in, in Devon where they live, um, lots of buildings are made out of mud and straw, right? It's called cob, and, but it's literally just mud and straw. And so you've got these, uh, we went there, it's like piles of just really old and decrepit mud and straw that looks like it's about to collapse with some other stones just more or less piled on top of each other looking like they're about to collapse and then a few bits of rusty tin spread over the top of it all and we were like, mate, that is not a barn. You know, that's a ruin. What you've bought is a ruin. Congratulations, you've bought a ruin. And anyway, nevertheless, he's like, no, 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 honestly, is, this is going to become my house for my new bride. And so he starts building this house. And each time we go down to Devon to see the family, we're, we, uh, we're impressed. The first time we go, he's rebuilt this mud and straw so it looks rock solid. It's perfectly straight and in line and strong and thick. And then he's also got other bits where he's got stones and he's like built those into amazingly beautiful stone walls that are all beautifully pointed and, and just held together really, really strong. The next time we go there, he's got like 
oak beams resting on things. The next time we go there, he's got roof trusses on. The next time we go there, he's like nailing perfectly shaped and um, just beautiful slate on, you know, so it's like a slate roof on the top. And then he's putting windows in and it's watertight and it's weathertight. And then he's got heating in there, and, but it's still a bit dark. And then he's got lights in there. And each time we're like, wow, this is amazing until it's just this beautiful, perfect, warm, safe home for his family. And if he was also brilliant at ancient Greek, the word that he would have used to describe that process of just building from the ground up, bringing strength and making it beautiful, making it whole, making it perfect, is the word that Paul uses here. Oikodome, verse 19, is oikos means house. It's like building the house up so it's really strong and whole and complete and perfect. Paul says, everything that we have done, all that we've said, our singular focus has been to build you up, strengthen you, make you wind and water tight, make you whole, make you warm, make you complete, make you perfect. That's what we've been aiming for. Let me just finish by saying this. We, we, on our sabbatical, We've just been kind of reflecting on the kind of family, the kind of people that we are as a church and and just so thankful, so grateful. And, you know, one of the striking things about a whole bunch of the churches that we visited, particularly in America where we were for a while, is that as soon as the service finishes, the whole place just empties. One time I said to the kids, there were 3,000 people in the room, I said, let's just sit down and just watch. Whilst the final song is finishing, people are already leaving. Within three minutes of the service finishing, 3,000 people had gone. And so it just puts a whole new perspective on those of us who are like trying to turn the lights out, you know, and, and it's like everyone's still chatty, you can't get rid of everyone because they're connected. But we started to realize how profoundly special and important that is. Imagine if our church became known as the kind of people who singular focus was to strengthen and build each other up and encourage each other, make each other, make one another more than we are and everything that we could and should become. Imagine if we were that kind of people. That would be a powerful thing. Why don't we stand?